We'll be continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke today. Today we're going to be learning about Satan, serpents, and salvation. The text is Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Let's read that this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here we see the return of the 70. Jesus had sent them out to go into the cities that he himself would travel to. And he told them to go to heal the sick in those villages, those cities, and to preach the message of the kingdom of God. And here we see their return and the report that they give of their mission And these words by the Lord Jesus Christ in response to this report. In verse 17, we see the setting. In verse 18, we see a statement about Satan. In verse 19, we have this statement about the serpents and the scorpions. And then in verse 20, we see Jesus speak about salvation. So... Let's examine the text then together. Verse 17, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So the mission was a success. They come back, and it appears that their preaching had been successful. We don't have any negative statements, negative reports here. It appears also that the healings are successful. And then there's an added success. They come back and say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. If you remember, this wasn't something that was in the original mission description that we have in the text as given by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, these guys are stoked. I mean, they are pumped. Here they've gone out. And put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They've gone out, they've preached the message and people have believed They have reached out and touched people, and those people were instantly healed. And then also, they have commanded demons to come out of someone in Jesus' name. And those demons then fled from the ones that they had tormented. They recognized here that the power was of Christ working through them to accomplish this. Look at verse 17 again. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In your name. Now, we need to point out here that there is some popular misunderstanding about the name of Jesus. It's the power of God that caused the demons to flee. Not some magic in the mere name of Jesus himself. The popular misunderstanding is, promoted by popular media in many different ways, is that the devil and the demons 
hate and fear the name Jesus or the sign of the cross. And if somebody just says Jesus, it means the demons are going to be afraid. Or if somebody makes the sign of a cross, it means the demons are going to tremble and they're going to fear. Some people are controlled by superstition and they may even wear crosses in the hopes to ward off demons. But the point here is not that there was some power in the name of Jesus, some mystical magic in the power of the name of Jesus, but it was the power of God himself. The power of Christ himself working through them. We've looked at this passage, but let's turn there again. Acts chapter 19, 11 through 20. This passage conclusively shows us, in my opinion, that it's not some magic in the name of Jesus himself, but it's the actual power of Jesus that causes the demons to flee. The power of Christ working through one of his people in the setting of our text specifically. Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Stop there for a moment. If there's some magical power in the name of Jesus, what, ex- what result would we expect here? These demons are going to kick. They're going to run, right? Okay, what happens? Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This should debunk the myth that there's some superstitious magic in the name of Jesus, rather than us understanding that it's the power of Jesus working through these men, the 70, that is driving out these demonic forces. So there we have the setting. Next we see a statement about Satan in verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Let's ask the question here. When did Satan fall like lightning from heaven as referred to by Jesus here? When did this take place? There are several different views. Some believe that this took place in the past. That Jesus is describing the original fall from glory of Satan. Others would say, no, Jesus was speaking about something that was going on in the near past. Namely, when Jesus conquered Satan in the wilderness. Remember the temptation battle that took place there and Jesus triumphed? Others would say, no, this was something that was going on in the present at Jesus' time. He was seeing Satan falling like lightning from heaven as the disciples went out. And as the disciples were casting out demons, Jesus was seeing a victory over Satan take place. Others would say, well, this refers to the future and the victory over Satan that Christ will accomplish at the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension unto heaven. Well, let's examine these views and see if we can come to some conclusions. The text does not say specifically, so we can't be dogmatic here. 
But let's examine some various factors here. The first view. And, and first of all, I just want to give some general background information that I believe is correct, regardless of how we interpret this text. First of all, everything was created good, was it not? After the days of creation, God said, it says God saw all those things and they were all good. Create, or Satan, I should say, is a created being, is he not? Colossians 1, 16, speaking of Christ, it says, For by him were all things created, which are on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, both the spirits and those visible beings, thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. There's a phrase which refers to spiritual forces. Scriptures also say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? It says all things then in Colossians were created by him and created for him. So God, through Christ Jesus, created all things, including the angels, some which became demons. Now, when did that take place? I believe that that took place in the creation week, the original creation week. Um, I don't find any other evidence in Scripture for God creating than specifically in that creation week, that original creation. Now we don't have angels and demons specifically listed in those days of creation, do we? But it is possible. Some have thought that when it says God created the stars, that that could have included the angelic beings as well because they are figuratively spoken of in the scriptures at, at times as stars. So, it is possible there that they were created on that day. But, I can't be dogmatic, but I would say at this point I believe that Satan and the other angels and demons were created on that day. Now, we see the creation week, then we see in Genesis 3 that Satan tempts Eve to sin. And I do believe it is Satan. We'll look at that in a moment. So somewhere between Genesis 1 and 3, Satan goes rogue. He was created good. God created all things good. But there were some of those spiritual beings, those angels that fell. And when they fell, they became what we call demons, workers of darkness. So somewhere between Genesis 1 and 3, Satan goes rogue and tempts Eve to sin. Again, I believe that it is Satan in the garden. It doesn't say in Genesis that it was Satan in the garden, does it? Have you ever thought of that specifically? We just seem to know or believe that it was Satan there. But what's the evidence that that was Satan in the garden? It says that it was a serpent. We do have the statement then in Genesis 3 about the seed and the serpent's head being bruised. There's some pretty good evidence, right? The serpent was Satan because we see the victory of Christ Jesus over Satan. But let's look at another passage, Revelations 12, verse 9. And we'll uh, look at several passages in Revelation today. Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called what? 
the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Notice there it says that serpent of old. I think this is a reference back to the Garden of Eden. Now, had Satan possessed one of the creatures that was called a serpent and controlled him in that way? Had Satan appeared as a serpent? We don't know specifically. But we do know, I believe, again, can't be ultra dogmatic, but I do believe that was Satan in the Garden of Eden that tempted Eve to sin. And what do the scriptures tell us about Satan? That he sinned from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. So I believe immediately after his creation that he exalted himself and tried to exalt himself above God, sinned against God, and tried to deceive Eve then in the Garden of Eden and thus try and promote his own agenda rather than God's. Well, as a result of Satan's fall into sin, there were other angels as well, the scriptures tell us, that fell into sin. 2 Peter 2.4 says that there are those angels, they didn't keep their first estate, they, they fell, and that they're reserved in chains and in darkness. And that text uses a term there, in the Greek it's a term Tartarus, which was understood to be one of the lower levels of hell with great torment. And we have Jesus, when he cast out the legion of demons, legion screams out and says, don't throw me, don't throw us into the abyss. That word abyss in the Greek language is the same word used for bottomless pit in Revelation. So, some of these angels that sinned against God and thus fell and became workers of darkness have been cast into, I believe, this place called the abyss where they are held until the final judgment. But I believe that there were others who were not cast into that place and these were the ones that were tormenting and oppressing, possessing the people during Jesus' day as we read through the Gospels. So a demon is a fallen angel. Satan is an angel that fell. Now, Back to the original question. Is Jesus, in our text when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, is he referring back to this original fall of Satan? Is Jesus referring back to the original fall of Satan? Some say yes because they believe that Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 14.12. Turn over there if you will. Isaiah 14, verse 12. It says in Isaiah 14, 12, How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Well, there it says Lucifer, right? Lucifer is Satan, isn't he? Well, we have to ask that question because that name, Lucifer, is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It's not directly connected to Satan anywhere else in the Scriptures. That word Lucifer literally means day star. Day star. Some translations won't even have the name Lucifer there. It'll just translate it as day star or morning star. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. Many commentators do believe that this is referring to Satan. Now, in the context of the passage, we are told specifically who this refers to. Look back for a moment to Isaiah 14, verse 3. It shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you are made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. Well, this prophecy, this proverb against the king of Babylon continues to verse 21, and then the destruction of Babylon is predicted in 22 and 23. So directly the text is speaking about the king of Babylon. Now here's the question. Does the text switch here at this point, beginning in verse 12, and refer to Satan who may have been working in and through the king of Babylon? That is a possibility. We must grant that that's a possibility. But it is speculative because this does not anywhere directly say that this was the devil or Satan that's being referred to here in this passage of scripture. So again, as I mentioned, there's some people that say that Jesus was referring back to the original fall of Satan like lightning falling from heaven and they say that Jesus was alluding to this passage where Satan, in their opinion, says that he will ascend above the heights of the clouds and be like the Most High. And it says in verse 15, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest pits, depths of the pit. So cast down. Well, I do believe this text is specifically speaking about the king of Babylon. It is possible that it does switch and then begin to refer to Satan. But again, I think that that's interpretation and that is somewhat speculative and one should not be dogmatic about that. It could here be using very figurative language as the Old Testament scriptures so often did to refer to the king of Babylon. You realize there's very figurative language in the scriptures. It speaks about the fall of nations and it says that the stars will fall from heaven and the moon will turn into blood and the sun go black and not give its light. It's not talking literally about those things happening because we look at the context of it and we see the prophecy against the nation of Babylon, for instance, and then we look at history and we saw that Babylon did fall and God judged them. So it was figurative language being used to describe those events, the fall of a nation. So this could be very figurative language. Okay, but here's what it all comes down to with this. Satan was created good. He sinned from the beginning. And then those that interpret the text in this past sense say that he was cast from heaven to earth and that's what Jesus refers to. I do agree that Satan was created good and he sinned from the very beginning. I do believe it's speculative to say that Isaiah 14 here is referring to Satan. But one way or the other, personally, I don't believe that that's what Jesus is referring to. I don't think he's referring to that original fall of Satan in one way or the other. 
So the second view then is that Jesus was speaking about the near past. Jesus' triumph over Satan in the wilderness. And this is possible. Jesus did send Satan reeling in that battle, did he not? Satan tried to tempt him three times and all three times Jesus responded with the sword of the Spirit and eventually he said, get behind me Satan and Satan slunk off defeated. So there was a quite a victory. So it's possible Jesus could have been referring to that. The other view said it was in the present. That in the triumph of his power through the 70, Jesus was seeing Satan falling. Satan being dealt a sudden and decisive blow in a series of battles where Satan was overcome during this messianic era. I believe this is more likely because of the original context. The other view says that it's future. In the triumph of the cross, resurrection, and ascension, and we know the New Testament does speak much about Christ's triumph. He spoiled the principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So that is a possibility as well. But in my, in my opinion, and again this is interpretation, not dogmatically from the text, it's most likely Jesus speaking about the present triumph of his power through the 70. The actual literal reading of Jesus' statement that, I, statement that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven would read like this. I was seeing Satan like lightning from heaven falling. So I think it could be properly interpreted that Jesus is conveying the idea that while you were doing this, casting out these demons, I was seeing Satan like lightning falling from heaven being given a sudden and a a decisive blow. Here. It could have been in a vision that Jesus was seeing this. That was a common way that God revealed things unto people. But here the context is the disciples' report of the minions of Satan being cast out, being dealt a great blow. Thus, such a blow would have brought Satan to his very heels and had dealt a decisive victory in the cause of Christ. And regardless of how we interpret that particular statement, this triumph of Jesus through the 70 over the minions of Satan was won in a list of decisive battles won by the Lord Jesus Christ during that glorious Messianic era. What have we seen as we've gone through Luke? We've seen that Jesus thrashed Satan in all three rounds of this prearranged match in the wilderness. We saw that Jesus, simply by speaking a word, kicked demons out of people so that they went forth screaming. We saw that Jesus empowered a group of men to speak in his name and to trample over the forces of darkness. And then we will go on to see that during a day that turned as black as night, Jesus cried out in a voice of triumph from the cross. He said, it is finished. And he dealt a massive blow to his deadly foe. He then gave up his spirit. He then, in resounding triumph, burst the bonds of death. 
rose from the grave, soared into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God, crowned in glory and in majesty. Jesus has crushed the serpent's head. The glorious, powerful, magnificent work of Christ has hammered the head of Satan. He is wounded, writhing, and defeated because of the work of Christ Jesus. Yes, it appears that he still has power today, and there are still demonic forces today. But he knows, Satan knows that he is finished because Christ has triumphed. Christ has triumphed. He has been cast down. So, the setting there, the statement about Satan, and now the statement about serpents and scorpions. Verse 19. Jesus says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Let's ask another question here. Jesus says, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. It is true that Jesus could be saying here that I am giving you authority and protection from poisonous creatures like snakes and scorpions. That could be. Very possible. We have accounts like the Apostle Paul and getting bitten on the hand and it didn't hurt him. He shakes it off. There is a highly disputed passage of scripture at the end of the book of Mark, Mark 16. But let me give you another option here. What did Jesus mean when he said, I give you authority to trample on serpents and on scorpions? Here's another option. The serpents and scorpions could be figures of speech referring to the minions of Satan, the demons. Again, the Bible uses much figurative language, does it not? Satan is called a serpent. But he's a spiritual being. He was created as an angel. But he's called a serpent. So, it is possible that Jesus is referring to the power that has been granted to these men to overcome the forces of darkness, the demons. The context here is one of power over the demons, is it not? Jesus gives them authority over all the power and over the enemy. And then he speaks in verse 20 there, notice, he says that he gives them subjection, the spirits will be in subjection to them. Look over also at Revelation. I mentioned we'd be there several times. Revelation 9, beginning with verse 1. Remember, I've mentioned the bottomless pit and that there are demons that are held there in that bottomless pit. Look at Revelation 9, verse 1, and we'll read through a few verses. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Notice there it says a star. Was that speaking about a literal star in the heavens? No figurative language here again. 
Okay? The Bible is full of it. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. Are these actual locusts like grasshopper-type locusts? No, again, figurative language. Locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Notice that reference to scorpions. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion, when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death, and will not find it. They shall desire to die, and death will flee from them. This, I believe, is a picture of the bottomless pit being opened up, and the demons being released for a period of time. They're described as striking people like scorpions. Notice then in verse 7, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Again, I think this is very figurative language. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Apollyon. So you, you see there, we have these demons being released from the bottomless pit, and they're described in several different ways as being like scorpions. So, when Jesus says... I give you power, authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Jesus may have been sending the disciples out on a rattlesnake and scorpion tromping hunt. I mean, that could, that could be. He could be saying, I give you authority to go out there and squash every rattlesnake and every scorpion you find. Personally, I, I don't lean toward that. I think he's referring metaphorically to the forces of Satan serpents and scorpions, demonic forces in the context, you have authority to cast out demons and to battle against Satan. So Jesus had given his men the authority to trample, I believe, the minions of Satan by casting them out of those whom they were oppressing. And Jesus then also was protecting his men from harm at the hands of Satan's servants. So we've seen the setting and Satan and the serpents. Now we have the keystone of the text. The statement about salvation. Notice this in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Remember here the disciples were stoked. They were pumped. Demons that could turn a mighty man into a marionette were screaming their way out of people at their command. These guys were pumped up. But now Jesus puts things into perspective, doesn't he? He puts things into perspective. This is really, I believe, a mild rebuke that Jesus gives to them. He says, but rather rejoice because your names are written in the kingdom, or written in heaven, written in heaven. 
Now, again, this is interpretive here. I don't think Jesus is saying, guys, knock it off. Stop being happy that you're kicking out demons by my power. I don't think that that's the tone of what's being said here. But what I think Jesus is doing is saying, here is the greater thing to rejoice in. It is a greater cause for rejoicing that your names are written in heaven even than you having this incredible miraculous power to kick out these demons. Ultimately, for the disciples, if it were possible that they could have the power to evict demons and then ended up losing their own souls in hell, what would it have profited them? Jesus says, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul in hell, what does it profit? What does it profit? So he's telling them to rejoice that their salvation is secure because of the sovereign decree and the omnipotent power of God. Their names are written in heaven. What do you think that means? That the names are written in heaven. Let's look at Revelation again. Just going to read four verses. We'll turn to each one quickly. Revelation 13, verse 8, first of all. Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. This is speaking about the beast from the sea. It says, All whose names are not written in the book of life. Where would that book of life be? That would be in heaven. So Jesus says, Your names are written in heaven. Their names are written in the book of life, I believe. All those who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, here's, a, here's something interesting that only in this past week in my studies I came across. I have always interpreted this verse, verse 8, to be speaking about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That that part speaking about slain from the foundation of the world was referring to the Lamb there. But there's another possible interpretation here. And that is that the text is saying, and many translations will translate it this way, that the names of these people had not been written in the book of life, the book of life of the Lamb slain, and the people's names had not been written from the foundation of the world. So this interpretation says that the statement from the foundation of the world is referring to the names and when those names were written, not referring to Christ and when he was slain. Okay? I've always interpreted that to be figuratively saying that it was predestined that Christ would be slain and that he was predestined before the foundation of the world, which is absolutely true. And there are other scriptures which point to that. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not denying 
that God planned before the world was even created that Christ would come and be slain. But what I'm saying is, in this passage, it is very possible that it's saying the names were either written or not written before the world was even created. And that the book itself is the book of the Lamb who was slain. Our next text, I think, supports that interpretation. 17, verse 8. But in particular here, we're focusing on this book of life and the fact that the disciples' names were written in heaven. And I believe written in this book of life. But notice here in verse 8 of 17. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. You notice there? This removes the reference to the lamb who was slain. And what does it say? Very similar wording to the other passage but it says that the names were not written from the foundation of the world. So, interpretation? I believe that there are those who are written in God's book. And those names were written before the world was even created. Those who are not in the book will be condemned. Those whose names are in the book have cause for immense rejoicing. Because they are God's chosen people. God's chosen people. Revelation 20.15 And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There we see that those who are not in the book of life will be cast into hell. The implication, those who are written in the book of life will inherit heaven. One final verse, 21 verse, seven, uh, verse 27, excuse me, 21, 27. But there shall by no means enter it, the new Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the new Jerusalem. Okay? So, here's what we've seen in our text. We've seen Satan being dealt a terrific blow. The messengers of the Messiah are giving the report that they are casting out the minions of their enemy. We have seen the 70 given authority to further trample on the forces of darkness. I believe these forces, the serpents and scorpions, are the demons themselves. And then finally, we see the statement of Jesus that salvation is the superior reason for rejoicing, even over a miraculous gift, such as casting out demons. So let's apply this to ourselves today. And here's the general application in a sentence, and then we'll discuss this a little bit. We have more reason for rejoicing in salvation than in any sensational experience which we can have. We have more reason for rejoicing in salvation and that our names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. There is more cause for being happy, for rejoicing, for praising God in that than in any sensational experience that we could 
ever experience that any human being could ever experience. The disciples had a sensational experience, did they not? They cast out demons. Demons fled at their command. I mean, isn't that that's sensational? But Jesus said that their names being written in heaven was a greater reason for rejoicing. Being one of the elect, one who is secured for all eternity, is a greater reason to rejoice than even even having a miraculous gift and being able to cast out demons with a word. Here's a fact about us as human beings. Not everybody to the same degree, but humans in general. We can hunger for sensational experiences, can't we? We can long for God to do something sensational to show us that He's really there or to give us something to rejoice and to tell others about. And there are some people who have had, I don't doubt this at all, who have had incredible, miraculous even experiences. God can miraculously heal today. God's arm is not shortened. God can reach down and rescue a drowning man. He can reach down and stop a skidding car. He can reach down and catch a falling baby. His arm is not shortened. But the temptation is that we will put too much stock in our sensational experiences or looking for and longing for sensational experiences, or flocking toward people who have had sensational experiences, and thus find greater joy in those things, or desiring those things, than the fact that our names are written in heaven itself. Again, the disciples had miraculously cast out demons here, but Jesus made it emphatically clear that the fact that their names were written in heaven and that they are saved was a more glorious Miracle, even than casting out the demons. I want to relate an experience that I had. It wasn't sensational on my part, but it was listening to a man who had had a sensational experience. When I was at Southwest Baptist University, a man named Don Piper, D-O-N, not John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, but a man named Don Piper, the founder of Don Piper Ministries came and spoke to us in chapel. He relayed to us an account of a horrific accident that he was involved in. He was leaving a conference, driving a little bitty compact car, came up over a bridge, and an 18-wheeler went right over the top of his car. And in Don's account, he says, I was killed instantly. He said the EMT that was first on the scene pronounced him dead immediately, and they tossed a tarp over his mangled body, which was in this car. There was a man in a car several cars back who had been at the same conference. The traffic couldn't get through the bridge because of the mess. Ninety minutes passed from the time of the accident, and this man then reported being felt compelled by God to go and to pray at the immediate scene of that accident for the victims in the accident. So he went up and approached Don Piper's car and was told by a police officer standing nearby, you can't go over there. 
And he said, well, I want to pray for this man. Well, that man's dead. You can't do anything. Finally, this pastor convinced the police officer to let him go. He reached under the tarp and placed his hand on Don Piper's hand and began to pray for him and then began to sing a hymn. And suddenly, from under that tarp, came Don Piper's voice singing along with him. Don Piper then went on to explain that as soon as that 18-wheeler rolled over the top of his car, that he was instantly transported to heaven. And for 90 minutes of earth time, he was in heaven. That he met people at the gates. The people that were there were all people that he had known and who had had a spiritual impact in his life. The gates were made of gold and there was pearl and the sound of angels' wings and voices. He was making his way to the center of the great city where he knew that Christ was when he was instantly transported back, in his words, into his car where he heard singing and then began to sing in darkness because he was covered by the tarp. He had an incredible experience. It was very sensational, and the way that it was presented was very sensational. I mentioned that we, as human beings, can hunger for such experiences. That chapel was packed. Normally, the college students are going to miss as many chapel times as they can. It's mandatory. They have to be there. Most of them will miss as many as they can and still graduate, but that place was packed out. And there was a long line of people wanting Don Piper's autograph after the presentation. He spoke again in the evening, and it was packed as well. Uh, I was there, of course, in chapel, and then uh, a friend of Mandy and myself invited Mandy to come for the evening, so she went and listened to it as well. I want to make very clear that I don't know if Don Piper went to heaven or not. In my opinion, that wasn't the issue, to be quite frank. It is possible that he went to heaven. If I find anything in Scripture which conclusively says that he could not have gone to heaven, then I will stand here and say he did not go to heaven because the Word of God is the ultimate authority. I also want to make very clear I'm not judging his sincerity in any of this. But I was looking for something as I listened to him. I wanted to know how he would connect his experience to and interpret his experience in light of the authority of the Word of God. Here is what I heard from him. In everything that was presented, here is the message It was Don Piper saying, I am living proof that heaven is real. You can know that heaven is real because I have been there and have come back to tell you about it. That was the message that I heard. Here's a quotation from his website. Quote, The vast majority of people living today believe that there is another place beyond this world. There is. Don Piper experienced it. End quote. What I heard him saying was that my sensational experience can give you a greater assurance of heaven 
and thus a greater joy because you have more assurance. But here's what I would have liked to have heard him say. I believe that I died and went to heaven. But you have a more sure word even than mine. Don't take my word that heaven is real. Take God's word for it. Because God has written it in the scriptures. You see, God's inerrant, infallible, sufficient, inspired, authoritative word says that heaven is real. That trumps all human experience. We should trust God's word before we will even trust our own senses. We can hallucinate. We can lose touch with reality. But God has written a book and God never loses touch with reality. We should test all of our experiences and the experiences of everyone else based upon the Word of God. And the Word of God says that if we are in Christ Jesus, our names are written in heaven. And we don't need sensational powers or experiences for our joy to be full. Because we are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, here's a question that we can ask ourselves. Would we be happier in this life if we were to be given a miraculous gift such as casting out demons? Or is our joy already overflowing that our names are written in the book of life? My dear brothers and sisters, think about the reality of salvation and what you have been given if you are in Christ Jesus. Look at this. Turn to Ephesians 1 with me. Consider this. Again, as you have considered it before, I am sure. Consider, if you are a Christian today... What is yours in Christ Jesus? And ask yourself, would I be happier if God performed a miracle for me? Would I be happier if I was given some miraculous gift like the disciples were given? Jesus says, rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Look at what we have in Christ Jesus. Beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you are in Christ today, you have been blessed already with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places which are in Christ Jesus. You are the blessed. Continue on. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world and has written... Your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Notice that. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are blessed. You are chosen. 
You are holy. You are blameless in the eyes of God. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we are the blessed. We are the chosen. We are the holy. We are the blameless. We are the predestined. And we are adopted into the family of God. Continue on to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So we're the blessed, we're the chosen, we're the holy, we're the blameless, we're the predestined, we're the adopted ones, and we are accepted in Christ Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we are the blessed, we are the chosen, we are the holy, we are the blameless, we are the predestined, we are adopted. We are accepted and we are redeemed because of the work of Christ, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. We're heirs of Christ Jesus as well. So we're blessed, we're holy, blameless, chosen, adopted, redeemed, heirs of Christ, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, it says here. So with all of these things that are already ours if we're in Christ Jesus, do we have any reason to rejoice? (laughs) Do we have anything to be thankful for? Do we need a miraculous gift or a sensational experience to make our joy full? No, rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth. Our names are written in heaven because of your great decree, the glorious redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that daily you would help us to reflect on, to meditate on, to savor the glory of being your children and the greatness of what we have as a result of who we are in you because of your free and sovereign choosing of us to be your children. I pray that you'll help us to interpret our experiences through the lens of your word. May you increase our joy. We have been gloriously redeemed. We have a glorious redeemer. His name is Christ and we worship him today. We pray this in his name. Amen.